is a beautiful uh, arrangement of that and melody, haunting and beautiful all at the same time. Thank you, Kyle. You can make your way to Revelation chapter 21 tonight. Revelation chapter 21. Man, it's light outside. Sitting there on my couch in my den and thinking it's not anywhere near time to go to church until I looked at the clock. And it's like, we better hurry. We're going to miss it. We'll get used to it. All right. Revelation chapter 21, we'll continue our study tonight. But I want to remind you first, though, of something that Christ said in Matthew 6. So we'll turn there just for a moment, but let's pray about our study tonight. Father, thank you for uh, your work in our lives, uh, your saving work, your sanctifying work. We, we are so grateful to you, and we are dependent upon you. Thank you for your word. Speak to us tonight through the truth that's there so that we can Rejoice uh, even more as we ponder uh, heaven and what is waiting for us there. In our Savior's name, amen. Yeah, just a reminder of something that Christ said before we get into Revelation 21. It's something far-reaching. It's in Matthew chapter 6, familiar words to us, starting in verse 19, where he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a statement that works both ways. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. But you can think of it the other way, and it's just as truthful. Where your heart is, there your treasure is. It's both and. And as I said, it is a far-reaching truth, which means it has implications related to uh, many topics. And one of those topics is our view of heaven. If we love heaven, if we long for heaven in our hearts, well, it's because that's where our treasure is. And if our treasure is in heaven, then we will long for it in our hearts. So the bottom line is this, this kind of genuine and strong longing for heaven is an indicator of genuine salvation. Well, heaven is what we discussed last Wednesday as we turned the corner in the book of Revelation to chapter 21, and we're discussing it again tonight and even next Wednesday night as well. In this chapter, chapter 21 of Revelation, we find the prophecy of the future and final heaven as well as the future and final earth. As I noted last time, it's a glorious chapter because What's presented here is the culmination of God's eternal redemptive plan. I mean, the plan that's formed in his own eternal mind before time began, here's the prophecy of the culmination of that. This is what all of Scripture uh, is moving toward, this culmination. Or to say it differently, all Scripture moves toward the final goal of history. Ever since the fall, God's ongoing eternal plan is to restore the creation through 
his son. Now, the main point of our last study, which was verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 21, is that the present place that we think of as heaven is not the final place of heaven. So let me read verses 1 and 2 again of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven. This is the Apostle John, the vision he was given. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So I noted for you that this passage and the verses that follow those two give us some facts about the final and eternal heaven. We looked at three of those facts last time. Number one, it will arrive after the millennium. So you you, you you see the chronology in the book of Revelation. It's clear, really, if you just let the language say what it says. There are these many connecting terms that keeps propelling you forward on the timeline. So we, we looked at chapter 20 uh, before chapter 21, and chronologically it comes before chapter 21 in God's plan and uh, the millennial reign of Christ on earth and then the great white throne judgment will arrive, what we're talking about here, after all of that, after the millennium. Second fact we noted is, and, and by the way, the, the, the verse, the very first verse of chapter 21 starts with one of those connecting words, then. That's not just a throwaway word, it's a chronological term, then, after what we read about in chapter 20. But the second fact is it will have a new form. It says it's a new heaven and a new earth. And the fact that there will be no sea on this new earth like we know of it now. It will be a, in a different form. And third, the third fact we noted last time, it will have a capital city. It says in verse 2 that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, John sees this amazing vision of this city. And we'll see more of that next week, something about this new Jerusalem. But that's the capital city of the future, final, new heaven and new earth. Well, next, we see starting in verse 3, and this is about the 20th time that we see this in the book of Revelation, John hears, once again, a loud voice. And this introduces the fourth fact about heaven. Number four, it will center on God's presence. It will center on God's presence. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. The specific source of the voice is not revealed here. We can say that it's not God because he's going to speak later on in a few verses later in verse 5. This is likely an angel, and we've seen that before. We've seen it in chapter 5, in chapter 7, chapter 14, chapter 19, an angel speaking, and that's likely what this voice is here. It does tell us that the voice comes from the throne, so it's an announcement related to God, just not directly God speaking himself yet. And the loudness, it calls attention to it there. It's a loud voice. The loudness emphasizes the importance of the content of this announcement made by this voice, this angel. And here it is, verse 3, saying, behold, The tabernacle of God is among men. Now, that term tabernacle can also mean tent. 
It can mean dwelling place. So it's essentially saying that heaven, the final heaven, will be a place where God, you could say it this way, God pitches his tent among his people. He tabernacles among his people, if you want to make a verb out of it. Now, the term tabernacle has already appeared in the book of Revelation. It was referenced earlier in John's vision, but there it was something about the tabernacle in the present heaven, chapter 13, verse 6, and chapter 15, verse 5. But now it is the tabernacle that will be on the new earth, and that is in, in this verse we see it's a tabernacle in the immediate presence of redeemed people. God pitching his tent in the presence of redeemed people. Now, obviously, when we hear that term tabernacle, we rightly think about the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness where God's glory was among the people. It dwelt with his people. God's glory dwelt there. This was important, the way God was revealed to his people then. However, his presence with his people in the new heaven will be even closer, as important as that was to the people of the Old Testament. His presence here will be closer. His presence will be more intimate than it ever was in the Old Testament. I mean, think of the the various ways God was revealed in the Old Testament, proving that he was with his people uh, in a cloud and in a pillar of fire. You remember as they went through the wilderness. Well, no longer will he be veiled that way. No longer will he be far off or or distant. No longer will he even dwell only in the holy of holies in the tabernacle and the temple by his glory. No longer will he even be veiled in human flesh. He will be present. He will be near, intimately dwelling in and amongst his people forever. Now, there was a similar expression to this back in Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. Let me read it for you. Revelation 7, 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Chronologically, that's, that's before this. He will spread his tabernacle over them. We don't have that in this verse, that preposition over It's the preposition among. He will be among men. And that suggests, you see, an even closer bond of fellowship. In that earlier passage, it was the the temporary heavenly rest of the, the, the multitude that was in view in that chapter, the innumerable multitude. But here, it's something different. It is the permanent condition and experience of all the saints, God pitching his tent, tabernacling, dwelling amongst his people. And then verse 3 states it directly and he will dwell among them. This will completely fulfill then what that Shekinah glory of God in the tabernacle represented and symbolized. Here it's completely fulfilled, which means we should see this as a return. If you think about it, it's a return to the condition under which God fellowshiped with man before sin entered the world. Think about that. God created a man and a woman in their innocence, placed them in a perfect environment on the earth, fellowshiped with them, 
but then centered and entered in with the resultant curse upon mankind and curse upon the, the universe and estrangement from God. So as it was, though, before that, God will once again fellowship with his people like that, dwell with them. And then to that mind-boggling reality <clears throat> that God is going to tabernacle or dwell with his people, the verse adds this statement in verse 3, and they shall be his people. And when we think of people being God's people, we might think of Israel in the Old Testament. That was true. That was God's chosen nation for his purposes in the Old Testament. But whenever it, Israel is referred to as his people, and this is something interesting about the grammar here, Israel is referred to as God's people normally when people is put in a singular form. You don't see this in English, people's people. But in the, in the original language, there's a singular and a plural. Normally, Israel is God's people in the singular form. Here in our verse, the term people is plural. So this is looking at a, at a broader and more expansive makeup of who will be God's people in eternity. In heaven, God's people will consist of individuals from all nations. Now, we recall that God made a promise to Abraham in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, that God would make Abraham a blessing to all peoples. Listen to Galatians 3, verse 8. This is just a New Testament quote of that. Galatians 3, 8, Paul writes, the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And then Galatians 3 goes on to describe the difference in the future, in this future complete people of God. Listen to Galatians 3 again, but starting at verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, meaning spiritually, heirs according to the promise. So this in Revelation is really the ultimate fulfillment of that. In the church, presently in the church age, we taste that. This is true unity, actually. Uh, this is the answer to disunity, is what the church is, representing people from all nations who are born again and who love the same Savior and who love the same Word of God. We taste that now, but in heaven, it'll be completely fulfilled. Many nations participating in the fulfilling experience of God pitching his tent forever, dwelling amongst his people in the new and final heaven. And then to again emphasize this future divine fellowship, verse 3 goes on, and God himself will be among him. Look how many ways it's being said here to emphasize it. Intimate dwelling of God with his people. Now, this was prophesied in the Old Testament it would happen. Listen to some of the prophecies. Leviticus 26, verse 12. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. There were some temporal experiences of that, but pointing to something far more complete. Ezekiel 37, verse 27. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Zechariah 2.10, behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. 
So again, this is mind-boggling to think about, that what we will experience in heaven will be God there presently, intimately fellowshipping with his people from many nations. In a sense, you could even say it's the amazing reality of Matthew 5, 8, finally and completely coming to pass, where Christ says this in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, saved people, because they shall see what? God. Also, by the way, it connects with Christ's prayer in John 17. One of the things he said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 24, it's going to be answered completely here in heaven. Here's what he prayed. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me will be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. All of that will be completely fulfilled in heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem that took the place of the tabernacle that was this symbol of God's presence. But we're told something interesting later on in this same chapter, verse 22. There's no temple. We're not talking about a temple. Revelation 21, looking ahead to verse 22, part of the vision says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The presence of God, the triune God, the presence of the triune God permeating this new heaven. And it will not be confined to one place of manifestation at all. Notice that the word himself is added in verse 3 there toward the end. That use of the term himself, he could have just said, and God will be among them. But the Spirit intentionally inspires this word to be added there. It intensifies the point that is finally the arrival of what I said at the beginning, the consummation of all things. Now, I read this verse to you last time, but it's so profound. I want to read them again. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 uh, and following. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 24. Then comes the end. It's looking toward this. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom, the son hands over the kingdom to the the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That takes place in Revelation chapter 20. Verse 28. When all things then are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one, the Father, who subjected all things to him, the Son, so that God may be all in all. There comes a point where we have to just let the Scripture say it the way it says it. What's it going to be like? God is going to be all in all. The triune God, his presence permeating heaven as he dwells intimately amongst his people. The point here about heaven, the fact is that it all centers on him. That's the central focus of heaven, God. That's the essence, the very focal point of the new Jerusalem, the manifestation of God's glorious presence to his people like no other time in redemptive history. And it is this new relationship that will be the supreme and immeasurable reward for God's people. A reward that far surpasses all the other benefits that the new Jerusalem is is going to afford. 
and people have all kinds of questions. What, what do you think it means when it says the streets of gold and gates and, and things like that? Those are secondary things, really. Heaven will center on God and his presence. Here's a fifth fact about heaven. It will be a state of perfect bliss. It will be a state of perfect bliss, which means heaven is going to be just like it is now, right? I'm just seeing if you're listening. It'll be dramatically different from the present world. We, we know nothing like this. I mean, we taste moments of joy, and we're grateful for them. But heaven is going to be dramatically different than the present world. Let's look at the changes. The first change from our present earthly life will be this incredible experience for believers in heaven. Verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Keep the first, the other fact in mind, the triune God, his presence permeating heaven because God pitches his tent amongst all of us. And he wipes away every tear from their eyes. What are these tears? Sometimes tears are mentioned in scripture as being tears of repentance. It's not tears of repentance here. This is referring to the tears caused by just the nature of our existence in the old creation. It's just the tears that are part of life in a fallen world. Life here is one that consists of groaning. We groan here. We suffer here. We weep here. But in the future new heaven, no tears will exist because weeping will not exist. Now, don't visualize this the wrong way. It's not that people are arriving crying and God has to pat them on the head and comfort them so that they stop weeping. It's not that. This is referring to something that's our ongoing existence in heaven what it'll be like forever. I'll tell you something else this does not mean, and some even imagine this, that there's going to be weeping at first. So what God is saying here is that he'll wipe away all the tears from our eyes after some initial weeping as we face the record of our sins when we get there. I've heard sermons like that many, many years ago that there's a videotape, you know, well, many years ago, videotape, a Super 8, uh, a DVD, you know, a video of your life and all your thoughts and all your, your sins and all your failures and your sins of omission and sins of commission, that it's all going to be seen by everybody. That would cause a lot of weeping at first. But the good news is that has been made up by somebody, I think, to manipulate people. There is no such record of that there. You'll not face any record of your sins and weep over that. We know that because of Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None, zilch. So it's not that. 
What our verse is referring to is the fact that in, in heaven, forever, there's going to be the absence of anything to be sorry about. There's going to be the absence of anything to be sad about. The absence of anything that would ever be disappointing. The absence of anything to be burdened about. No burdens, no disappointments, no sorries, no sadness, no tears over the things we cry about here like lost loves and lost relationships, no tears over misfortune that occurs here sometimes to people, and some of the biggest tears, no tears of remorse. And what about this one? No tears of regret. Those are horrible and real tears. Tears of remorse and tears of regret. Not in heaven. No regret. No tears when thoughts of past shame come to your mind again. That won't happen anymore. Let me just summarize it. No tears for any reason. No sadness. What a thought. What a new existence this is going to be. It will be a state of perfect bliss. Now, here's some other verses that point to this new existence characterized by perfect bliss. Listen to some of these, the prophecy. Isaiah 25, verse 8, the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. Even in Revelation, back in chapter 7, verse 17, it says there, the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And here's something encouraging grammatically. It's these little things that you, you press on the language and, and, you've, and, you, and you find. Just like I said, people here is plural. In a way that we don't get it in English, the phrase every tear is singular. And so the focus is not just on a, on a mass of, of, of people and just no tears. It's, it's looking at it in a way that's mind-boggling again, that individually, for you, every one of your tears, singularly, will be wiped away, gone. It's a way grammatically to emphasize God's great compassion and comfort for individuals. In each and every individual, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've experienced here on earth, there will be no exceptions to this no tears clause here, the no tears promise. I mean, that's enough right there to prove that this will be a place of perfect bliss, a state of perfect bliss, but it goes on. Verse 4 goes on to present another dramatic difference between life now. And by the way, what I've just said about tears, think about that. In these times in this fallen world that you do weep over something. May that be a reminder to you what I said tonight, that in heaven that won't happen ever for any reason. Verse 4 goes on to present this 
additional dramatic difference here between life now and our future lives in heaven. And all these connect. I mean, this one certainly adds to the state of bliss we're going to experience. It's this reality that the greatest curse associated with our present earthly existence will be no more. Verse 4 goes on to say, and there will no longer be any death. Now, in this present fallen world, in our creaturely state, we can hardly imagine this, hardly envision. Everybody here has been touched by this in some way. We have all experienced the death of a friend, the death of a loved one, and something else about each of us. We each face the prospect of death, our own. It's coming. And Scripture presents death as an enemy. I mean, death is an intrusion. Death is is an enemy. It's the starkest reminder that we do live in a cursed world right now. I'll remind you of the theology compacted in the little verse in Romans 5, verse 12. Summarizes the whole fall and the implications and the, and the results of the fall, Romans 5, 12. Just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned from that point onward. Death has been the experience of this cursed world. Hebrews 9, verse 27, it is appointed for men to die once, and then after this comes the judgment. So this is a universal experience. All, all the health measures that you can take will not change this. All the exercising, all the dieting, all the avoidance of sugar, all the essential oils that you could possibly drink or bathe in, all that you could possibly do, renouncing donuts and lucky charms the rest of your life. At least lucky charms are chock full of vitamins. It says it right on the box. All of that that you do will not stop your appointment with death. You might enjoy life better getting there, and you might look better in the coffin. But nothing will stop it. It's our greatest enemy in that sense. It's it's the greatest intrusion. And for those outside of Christ, Scripture in Hebrews 2.15 says it's man's greatest fear. Hebrews 2.15 talks about those who, it says, through fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. People running from it. People trying to avoid it. And yet it comes anyway. That's people outside of Christ. But believers, we still face it, but we do not have to be controlled by a fear of it, a fear of death. In fact, the verse right before the one I read to you in Hebrews that says, through fear of death, men are subject to slavery all their lives. That's Hebrews 2.15. Let me back up one, read Hebrews 2.14. 
Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, since people have flesh and blood, in other words, he himself, Christ, likewise, also partook of the same flesh and blood, that through death, so he experienced human death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Death is his greatest weapon. He knows how people fear it. And Christ was victorious over the devil. And this victory over Satan and death experienced by God's people is something mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Isaiah 25, verse 8. The Lord will swallow up death for all time. Swallow it up. Those great words in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, it's the, it's the chapter about the resurrection of Christ and, and the implications of that for our own resurrection. It has those famous words you hear sometimes read at graveside services, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. But when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying. What saying? Death is swallowed up in victory. It's actually pointing to what our verse is saying tonight. There'll be no longer any death. I mean, it makes sense that death will not exist there because Satan is the one who utilizes the power of death against us, and Satan won't be here because Satan will have already been cast into the lake of fire. We've already seen that in the book of Revelation. In fact, death will be cast in with him. So, you know, it's, it, this is the way my, my simple mind works, you know. It's like th- those old days. I mean, you guys never did this, but we did that when we had pool parties around the swimming pool and people always wanted to push other people in, you know. It, it, I don't know why we want to do that. And I never liked that, but people would always push somebody in. And, and the person being pushed in, what was their main goal once they knew they were going in? Take others with them. I mean, they're grabbing them and going in with them. I kind of see that, you know, Satan being cast into the lake of fire and grabbing death, you know, and my main weapon and taking it with him. Let me say it in more biblical terms. Look back at chapter 20, verse 10, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Now jump to verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's why there's not going to be death in heaven. It's in the lake of fire. I mean, I can't explain that any any more specifically than that. That's just what Scripture says. So this is going to make heaven a state of perfect bliss that there's no more threat with the specter of death in some way. What changes? No sorrow and sadness and crying, no weeping, no death. Does it get any better? There's still more change. There's more. Verse 4 goes on to present additional reasons for heaven's bliss. And some of this really is, is tied to what's already said, but there's nuances of difference. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. It only makes sense. There's no death so there's no mourning. This word mourning can also be translated sorrow. So it's, it's mourning over more things than just death. Now, there are going to be those in 
the tribulation time, they will mourn. In fact, mourning is going to be the, the lot of Babylon in the future when the city falls under God's judgment for her sin. If you look back a couple chapters or so to chapter 18, it says that in Revelation 18, 7 and 8. To, to the degree that she glorified herself, the city, and all the city represented, and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. Verse 8, for this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. There's going to be mourning in Babylon. But mourning, plus the crying that's mentioned, now are often associated with the death. But other things can cause sorrow. So the point is that there will be no cause for mourning of any kind at all by anything. And think about this, and pain will be missing. You ever had any pain? And this probably is a reference to physical pain. I mean, we have other kinds of pains, you know. This is probably physical pain. There's a lot of physical pain in this earthly experience. I was telling Jordan earlier that pain could serve him well. He's talking about his toes are tingling. You know, he had surgery and on one side to remove a clot, and now that those nerves are damaged, and so his toes are tingling and bothersome. And I did tell him, I said, hey, I can make you forget about that tingling. You won't even think about it. I'll hit your other foot with a sledgehammer, and I promise you, this other one then won't bother you anymore. He went and told Maria that, that I told him that. Physical pain, a lot of it. Our bodies, you see, are affected by the fall. The curse includes a curse on our bodies. So let's remind ourselves of Paul's great lament in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Talking about the body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll just read a few verses there. 1 and 2. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, that means our body, the earthly tent, is torn down, we have a building from God, another, another tent, another house, which means a body, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we have an earthly house now, earthly tent now, but we're going to get a new one in heaven, a glorified body is what he means. For indeed, he just kind of takes a side point there, verse 2, indeed in this house, this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. I've been groaning lately a little bit back again in my, my back. Have you ever had back pain? Things you do. I don't know what it is. The older you get, the more things cause that. I've been studying this in my own experience, and it's true. <laughs> Gardening. I mean, simple things. And so I was pushing this big, heavy roller that rolls and flattens dirt, you know, and I, I think I grabbed it the wrong way or whatever. And then to add to it, I drive my son's little sports car, you know, that the, the bottom of it is only about this high off the ground. And you're kind of sitting this one way, and it's, it's standard, and you've got to constantly doing the shift and the clutch, and something about that just compounded it. I'm just ventilating for you tonight. Many of you have experienced far worse pains than that. Crushing pains, terrible pains, broken bones. Paul goes on, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4, For indeed, while we were in this tent, 
we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed. It's not like we, you know, we don't want to have a body. But we want to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life someday. Now, back in Revelation 16, we found that in the future tribulation period, there's going to be a lot of pain because of the judgments being poured out on earth. It says that in Revelation 16, verse 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. That judgment is going to include physical suffering. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores. So compare all that to the bliss of heaven. None of these will exist in heaven. Once again, no pain. A fact that just exceeds our our present powers of understanding. Then verse 4 summarizes it. In verse 4, the first things have passed away. So the reason for the absence of tears and death and sorrow and crying and pain is the passing away of everything that accompanied all the, the, the evils, the, the, the wickeds, the wickednesses of the old creation, the one we're in now, a creation that is, is devastated and ravaged by the damage from sin, that, the damage you can't even, we can't even measure. It's the passing away of it all. In other words, all this, the tears, the death, the mourning, the crying, the pain, all of it entered the world in connection with the beginning of human sin in Genesis 3. It's been the story of human history ever since Genesis 3. So their disappearance in the future new creation represents then a reversal of the curse that accompanied sin. Old human experience related to the fall will be gone forever. Well, in verses 5 and following, the vision leaves the subject of the new Jerusalem just for the moment to record some unique speech from God. Verse 5, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. So there's a passing away of the old, and God himself speaks here. It's God the Father, the one sitting on the throne. In fact, that's the way he's consistently presented throughout the book. And just so you'll know, the last mention of that title was back in chapter 20, verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven just fled away. They're gone. But here God is speaking, directly uttering something. It's the first direct utterance of God in this book since chapter 1, verse 8. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So our verse 5 is the only time God is explicitly speaking except for that verse back there in chapter 1. Now, notice the word behold is there, and we see that in other places in Scripture. And just like in other places, the term behold signals a, a special pronouncement. 
And what is said is said to all God's people, and it's this, that the blissful universe that they're going to exist in now forever is new. And we noted last time, the new heaven and the new earth will not be just a makeover of the present heaven and earth. It'll be newly created. And in this new creation, no decay, no atrophy, no wastefulness, no decline, or if you studied physics, you can put it in the terms of physics, no entropy. There'll be one thing not new, and that's truth. We know that because of Luke 21, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So as the old creation is done away with, there's something that is steady going on, and that's God's truth. But that's God speaking in verse 5. I'm making all things new. And he said, now this is a change in speaker, confirmed by these words. And he said, the change is evident from verse 6 because the same conjunction is coming up, the same kind of phrase he said resuming the speech of the one on the throne. So this is an interjection interjection of speech from someone else. So we have a change of speaker in verse 5. And this speaker, he said, likely it's an angel, probably the angel guide who last spoke to John. But this angel gives John a command. So now he's commanding John to do something. Write. This is the third time John receives the command to write certain words. We saw it back in chapter 14. The voice from heaven said, write. Chapter 19, verse 9, then he said to me, write. I mean, here you sort of get the feeling here that by this point in the vision, I mean, just think that all that John has seen, and now he's seeing the vision of the new heaven and the new earth and the new city, the heavenly city, the capital city, descending down to the new earth. And he's sort of just standing there and and thinking about all this and not writing. (laughs) He's overwhelmed by all he's seeing. So the angel had to get his attention back saying, pay attention here, write. Gives him a direct command. And here's the basis for the command. Write this because these words are faithful and true. Now these words, that expression definitely refers back to verse 1 the start of this whole chapter, the new heaven and the new earth, the first heaven, the first earth is all passed away. But then everything that comes after that just fleshes that out. So the point is human beings, you and I, can rest assured of the reliability of all this that's being prophesied to come about the future bliss of heaven. Is guaranteed. All this connected to the new heaven and new earth will come to pass in God's timing. The words are faithful and true, regardless of our ability to grasp it all, regardless of our ability to adequately even express what's here to people today. It's all going to come to pass. Write this down, John. It's all guaranteed stuff. And then grammatically, we know that the one sitting on the throne resumes his speech in verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the one on the throne again, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
I love this announcement. It is done. It's almost identical to something that was said back in Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. In 16, 17, it says that a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there, it's in the perfect tense, and and here it's in the perfect tense, it's done, and that indicates that the action stands accomplished. Now, this is a vision of what's going to take place in the future when John is seeing it, but it's articulated as if it's done, it's accomplished, as if it's already fulfilled, it is in God's mind. So again, it's a way of stating it as a guarantee, this blissful state that we're going to enjoy. By the way, what what does that remind you of when you hear a divine being saying, it's done? Reminds you of the words of Jesus on the cross. It's finished. But there is a difference. Think about it. Jesus was saying something was finished. God is saying something's done. God the Father You could say it this way, the difference is Jesus was saying his work of atonement for redemption is done. These words have to do with the culmination of all history. What's done is entire redemptive history. And along with that pronouncement, the one on the throne claims this amazing identity. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That matches what God said about himself back in chapter 1, verse 8 that I read for you. I'm the Alpha and Omega. This title, Alpha and Omega, emphasizes God's eternal nature, his eternality, plus it's a way of emphasizing his complete control over all things. And this sovereign control over all things, along with his eternal nature, guarantees the complete faithfulness and the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of these words he has spoken. Now, many of you have learned this. You know that alpha and omega are letters of the Greek alphabet. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it's a way of saying that what the eternal God starts, he does complete. Nothing interrupts it. I like what Dr. Robert Thomas says in summary of the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Dr. Thomas writes this, he is the unchangeable one by whom the old was and the new shall be. The unchangeable one by whom the old was and the new shall be. Sovereign over all of it. So as the alpha, he's the beginning of all things. The first cause, we sometimes say. As the omega, he's the end of all things, the finality of all things. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans and Ephesians. Listen to Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's what it means to be the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Ephesians 4 verse 6, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And that God pitches his tent amongst his people. This is something God says about himself back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, says this, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. 
no beginning, no end of God. He is self-sufficient. He has no cause for his existence outside himself. No beginning, no end. He himself is the beginning and the end of all things. And what's interesting is Christ says this in Revelation 22, verse 13. Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last? Is it God the Father or is it God the Son? Yes. So God started history. God will end history. And everything is unfolding according to his sovereign plan, leading to this culmination of all things and this perfect state of bliss in heaven for his people. What he brings to pass will be exactly that, a state of perfect bliss. Here's another fact. We've got enough time to at least introduce it. Number six, it will have specific inhabitants. Heaven, the new heaven, it will have specific inhabitants. Now, there are two descriptive phrases given to us now that reveal who, who are these people? You ever heard that before? Who are these people? It's a good place to ask it here. Who's there enjoying the state of perfect bliss? Who's invited? Who's included? Who will live in this glorious new heaven and new earth and this new Jerusalem that is going to descend out of the present heaven? Well, first, the citizens of heaven are described as thirsty people. It's the thirsty people who will be there. Verse 6. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. I give that one. I'll satisfy their thirst, meaning all of this that I've prepared for the new heaven. That metaphor of thirst expresses an earnest sense of spiritual need. It actually comes from something all the way back in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Isaiah 55, verse 1, everyone who thirsts, here's an invitation, come to the waters. It's not right to say, whosoever will may come. That's not actually found, that phrase in Scripture. Whosoever thirsts may come to the waters. So here's this thirsty person. It's the person, it's it's describing the person who in this life recognized their desperate spiritual need, their desperate thirstiness. And they hungered, they thirsted for righteousness. And for this person, Jesus made a wonderful promise in Matthew 5 or 6. Just like he said, blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Here's what he said in verse 6 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Now, this kind of thirsting for something spiritual, spiritual truth, God himself, there are Old Testament verses 
especially in the Psalms that capture this kind of craving. Favorite passages for all of us, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. We sing a, used to sing a little chorus, you know, that came from this. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. So whether you're talking about thirsting or panting, it's the same idea. Verse 2, though, does use the word thirst. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. To pant after God is to thirst after God, the living God. The psalmist was trying to capture what that that craving for for God, what it looks like. And Psalm 63 says it again, and the setting is in Psalm 63, he's in the desert. If I remember right, he's running from Absalom. But he's in the desert, he looks all around, and he sees the the place that he's in. It's a dry and weary land where there's no water. So he writes this, Psalm 63, instead of saying, oh God, my God, you are my God. I, I, I want water. He says, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in this dry and weary land where there is no water. We're not perfect in this. I mean, our hearts are divided sometimes, but this is describing, even in Revelation here, the one who thirsts, this is the one who is, will be redeemed. This is the one who comes with spiritual thirst, and God always accepts that person and gives them water. These are the redeemed, and they enter heaven. They're the ones who came at some point to be dissatisfied with their hopeless condition. They were dissatisfied with their lost condition. It came to a point of craving to know God and craving forgiveness, craving his righteousness. And so God guarantees something to this person in Revelation 21, verse 6. He will meet their spiritual need. He says, from the spring of the water of life without cost. Without cost to the person, it's a gift. Cost the sun. But the spring of the water of life, eternal life, satisfies the thirst. Now, two other passages contain the essence of this promise from God to the faithful in Revelation. If you look, one's back and one's ahead. Revelation 7, verse 17. I read it earlier, but I'll read it again. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne. He will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. Ahead, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, stealing somebody's thunder, probably Danny's. We'll teach all that. Verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. There it is again. You know what this reminds me of as I was reading this and studying this? You know, it it reminds me of that scene that we studied in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. Couldn't help but think of that. And I've been asked, you know, what was my favorite passage in John so far? And 
I think I answered the question with like, you know, 15 passages, you know, or my favorite passages. But certainly this was one of them. The interaction of Jesus with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, amazing. And she comes out to give him water, you know, and a, and, and a Jew who did not want to talk to a Samaritan, and certainly a, a Jewish man would not talk to a Samaritan woman. And so the disciples were perplexed about all this. Here's Jesus there at the well, and the Samaritan woman comes out instead of all of them running, you know, saying, Let's get away, unclean, unclean. <clears throat> he starts talking to her. <clears throat> she offers him a drink. And so you know the setting there in John chapter 4. But verses 13 and 14, Jesus shocks her and tells her something there. Everyone who drinks of this water, you know, this water that you're giving me, will thirst again. You've got to keep coming back and getting more. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The one who's thirsty comes for satisfaction from God, which is forgiveness of our sin and peace with God, and it satisfies our thirst, except that we just want to know him more. But our thirst for life is satisfied. In fact, now there's water springing up to eternal life. That's John chapter 4. John chapter 7, Christ says some things like this again in verse 37 through 39, John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So using that same motif back in our passage, Revelation 21, verse 6, using the same motif, God the Father, the one on the throne, promises to satisfy forever in heaven the spiritual thirst of those who belong to him. And that satisfaction is eternal life in his presence and the enjoyments of the eternal bliss of heaven that we just described tonight. So first of all, heaven belongs to the thirsty ones who have come to drink of the spiritual water. But verse 7 gives us another phrase to describe these people. Heaven belongs also to the overcomer, describing the same person. Verse 7, he who overcomes, that's the one. They'll be here, the overcomers. They'll inherit these things. Now, the overcomer is actually described by John in his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Here's the overcomer. Whatever is born of, a born of God overcomes the world. So the one who's been born again, spiritually born again, he is now an overcomer. He has overcome the, the uh, attachment of the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So an overcomer is someone who has come to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, and has exercised saving faith because they've been born of God. They exercise saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That person has in faith received the water of salvation freely offered by God. And that person, therefore, is no longer considered a part of the world. Oh, we're tempted by the world, we're influenced by the world, we're impacted by it, but we're no longer part of it. We've overcome it. 
That was our identity, and we've overcome that identity, so we have this new identity called overcomers. And now we're identified with Christ, and we're identified with the truth. That's who will be there. The thirsty ones who found water and the overcomers. By the way, you may remember this, but remember all the letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches there that represent churches of all times throughout church history? Each of those messages, if you'll remember, ended with a promise to the overcomer. Every single one of them. I'll just read a few of them. Here's Revelation 2 verse 7. Here's how the first one ended. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, the saved person, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, which we'll talk about next time. Revelation 3, verse 5. Here's the end of another one. I'm not going to read all seven. I'm just going to read four of them. Revelation 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Look at the different ways it pictures the overcomer in the perfect bliss of heaven. I mean, it's all metaphorical, be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. One more, Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Again, it's a way to refer to true believers. And as we see in our verse, the promise here to those who overcome is that they're going to inherit something. The overcomers have an inheritance. And so it says there, they will inherit. That phrase in our verse carries the general sense of coming into possession of something. They'll come to partake of something. And what the believer will enter into possession of, what they'll inherit is these things. And it's the same as the all things back in verse 5. So the overcomer will inherit God's new creation, the very glories of the new heaven. This is the only place in Revelation where an inheritance is alluded to. But this idea of inheritance and that believers are spiritual heirs, that's a, a concept quite common elsewhere in Scripture. We see it in the Gospels, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 19, verse 29, for the one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farm for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Paul liked to talk about the idea of heirship. He says in Romans 4, 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be an heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham was saved by faith and inherited eternal life. Romans 8, 17, if we're children of God, we're heirs also, fellow heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, 7, we're no longer slaves, we're sons, and because we're sons, we're also heirs. And I love 1 Peter 1, 4 that says we have an inheritance in heaven 
that's waiting for us. It's undefiled, imperishable, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, your spot in the eternal bliss of heaven. And will exist forever in that place in a glorified body. That's part of our inheritance. We're not just floating around. We'll have glorified bodies. So Paul expresses longing for that in Philippians 3.21. He says that God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his body, with the body of his glory. Again, all of this true believers will enjoy forever in the bliss of the new heaven and the new earth. But only true believers will inherit that. Well, I hate to cut the sausage off right here, but I need to, right in the middle of verse 7. And we'll just pick up with that next time, and we might even complete the whole chapter next time. don't know. It's possible. But there's more wonderful promise to the inhabitants of heaven and only to them. So let's just go back to that initial thought. Where our treasure is, there our heart is. Where our heart is, there our treasure is. Don't build up treasures on earth, Christ said, but build up treasure in heaven. Here moth and rust destroys Thieves break in and steal things. The economy can mess up things. The government can mess up things. The things that have to do with heaven, eternal things, that's what lasts. So heaven should even be our focus now. Eternality should be our focus now because this is all temporary. We'll pick back up there next time. Father, thank you for this glimpse into the what is beyond our understanding, a new heaven, a new earth, old heaven and old earth passing away, being done away with, new creation, new heaven, new earth, a capital city coming down from heaven to the new earth, a state of perfect bliss of all people from all nations who are believers in other countries, other nations, other times on the timeline, all the people that we don't even, we have no idea of how many there are who came to thirst for something that this world couldn't offer. The overcomers who found a new identity in Christ and not this world will all be in heaven forever where you, our Father, pitches your tent. Thank you for the glories of that. In Christ's name, amen.